Well, as you likely know, there is a planned transit shutdown this coming week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. If things go ahead as planned, that means there will be no bus service and no sea bus service for those three days. That, as the labor dispute between members of Unifor who drive the buses and maintenance workers, the 5,000 members continue with their dispute with Coast Mountain Bus Company. Uh, We've been talking a lot about the impacts of this, what we can expect in the coming days, because if you think about how many people depend on transit now, it's a lot of people compared to the last time there was a complete shutdown of the system. And that was back in 2001. And Ujjal Desange was the premier of BC when that was going on. And he joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Ujjal Desange, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Good morning. Good what to do be you, with you? Thank you again so much. What do you remember about the transit strike of 2001 and that moment when you realized you were the premier of a province where transit had just shut down completely? Um, it was actually a sense of helplessness in the sense that we were going into an election. We were coming up against the uh, the, uh, the, the the limit. Um, um, within which the election had to be held. So the election was called two weeks after the strike started. Um, And it's only reasonable for um, the strike to go on for two, three, four weeks. Um, Therefore, we couldn't do anything within those two weeks um, uh, and shouldn't have. You know, there should be an opportunity for free collective bargaining. Um, but then once you were in the election, uh, there was absolutely nothing one could do. Um, and, and after the election, um, the government that just lost the election couldn't have recalled the House to uh, do something about it. Uh, it was up to the new government, and it, it took uh, a couple of months to uh, come to grips with it afterwards. And that, that was, a, I think, a very difficult time for people. Um, and and I remember calls from all sorts of um, uh, sources, uh, public and private, saying do something about it. But there wasn't much we could do. We were a government that had just lost, and uh, we weren't in control. Uh, do you remember, too, leading up to it, to the point where the strike happened? Was there a sense there, or do you remember a sense or an attempt to try and prevent it? Well, there, there are always, um, uh, you know, the Minister of Labor and, and other people always um, have discussions, ongoing discussions with uh, all of the strikes that may be coming up in the public sector, um, the unions and the employers. But uh, it, it is um, impractical and um, not appropriate to intervene uh, at that moment. Uh, and I don't think that intervention would have helped or it happened. What advice would you give today, then, to John Horgan? Um, the number of riders and the users is um, is way up, almost double, um, and uh, the system is more advanced and more sophisticated. More people depend on it, um, and it's going to cause more hardship than than it did then. Um, free collective bargaining, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is important, but. Um, but so are people's needs, and, and there has to be a happy balance between the two. And uh, at some point, the mediation needs to kick in and get the parties back. Uh, I know the, um, the inconvenience um, uh, started or is going to start Wednesday in a larger fashion, and that's going to be hard for pe- exactly the people who need and use transit, the, the poor the people who work 
every day. People don't have money to throw around or people who live far away uh, use SkyTrain and then buses because the buses and the SkyTrain, they aren't um, separate uh, systems. They are integrated um, because SkyTrain doesn't go everywhere. Buses take people uh, from SkyTrain to different places. So I I would suggest that, um, that uh, the Minister of Labor or uh, his advisors and, and staff, others need to actually be speaking to the employer and that the unions to not prolong this misery for people. Uh, do you think it would be too too much meddling if they were to put the two sides or say you, you must go to mediation or you must go to arbitration? Well, you know, I may be going right wing in my old age. Uh, I don't think it would be too much. Um, mediation is not... Um, if it was mandatory, it was compulsory, the binding arbitration, that is different. Mediation is not different. Mediation is that you begin to talk, and at the end of it, if it doesn't work out, then obviously you have the option to strike. So I think mediation is not something uh, that is um, uh, any kind of impediment on the freedom to uh, collectively bargain. Uh, mediation is appropriate, and I think the government should be making all the efforts it can uh, to say, look, we will assist you. Mediation is simply assisting. Binding arbitration is different. That is, in fact, saying we will arbitrate and impose an agreement. That uh, should come only after uh, other um, avenues have been have been exhausted. Uh, do you think there's a difference, too, in that uh, we talk about the government kind of walking this fine line and not getting involved and, and that we should let collective bargaining uh, run its course and that that's the best way to solve a labor dispute. But do you think there's a difference between if, if workers at a company go on strike, they hurt the company and it's between the workers and the company and in some cases jobs are lost, in some cases they settle, and it it eventually will end. In this case, though, we're talking about a taxpayer-funded service. We're talking about what uh, many people believe is an essential service. Is it different because we're talking about a transit system, something that's paid for by tax tax dollars? Well, not not just because it's being paid with tax dollars, because it affects the public directly. Um, Healthcare uh, strikes, um, strikes in public transportation, um, those are in the same vein. I think they they belong to the same category. They are important for people, whether or not they're privately or publicly paid. In fact, because they're publicly paid, government has more responsibility. But because the public is so dependent on it, um, uh, therefore you could liken the the um, transit strike to a healthcare uh, strike strike in the health sector. Because these are uh, services that people depend on. Uh, obviously, it's not a question of life and death as it's in healthcare, but it is a question of being able to make a living or uh, not being able to make a living sometimes for people who come from afar on SkyTrain and then hop on the buses to go make a living um, or for their appointments to doctors and others. Um, so I, I, I think it's, it's in an, a different category from a strike at a private plant manufacturing plant uh, between an employer and and the employees. Uh, This is different in nature, and the government should be more careful. And, uh, you know, the other thing is uh, an ordinary person who uses uh, the transit service isn't into these fine distinctions that others may be into. For them, it is a service they depend on. Let's not get into the niceties of of, um, all of these uh, various questions. For them, it's a service they depend on. They need it. 
they financially can't do without it. Um, it, it will it will make them broke in many cases if they start using cabs and others other things. And there's also the the issue too when you talk about it. It's not life and death like a healthcare situation would be. But we've certainly talked to people who have disabilities, who have mobility issues, who depend not only on transit to get out, but also depend on care workers getting to them on transit. Uh, which uh, they would likely argue that it it could be a life and death situation. Well, I, I'm I'm not I'm not arguing that in some cases it it's not it's not uh, important. It's very very important for people. It, it's an integral part of their lives and and, and their needs. Um, um, but it, but a direct healthcare strike is slightly different. There's no question. But all I mean, I'm I'm still despite the, that differentiation, I'm still arguing that that the government shouldn't let this happen for too long. It is important for the government to step in through mediation um, before it affects large number of people because it doesn't help anyone in the end. And when you say not happen for too long, what do you think would be too long? You know, it's it's difficult to uh, give a prescription of time. It really, I think I think that the government and the union may need to feel the pain a little bit before they before they um, uh, do anything. Union is already cognizant of the fact that people will get upset very quickly. I, I just saw some comments from the president of Unifor that they are taking the public along while the public that uses um, this uh, these facilities aren't going to be with them for very long if they don't make more efforts and more transparent efforts to come to the table and um, have discussions and resolve the issue. Uh, do you think also the the fact that uh, the numbers are out there as far as uh, the offers and the demands at this point and what the salaries are and uh, I mean the company is is really hammering the point that the offer they're making is more than what's being given to other public sector workers do you think that uh, that that leads to the public not being as sympathetic when they look at the the salaries that bus drivers and maintenance workers are being offered well absolutely um, you know I mean <clears throat> there's no question in public sector uh, um, people get paid more, uh, and in private sector, um, in other facilities, they paid um, they, they get paid much less, and and that kind of differentiation also breeds resentment. And if you if you uh, have um, you know well paid public sectors, there's nothing wrong with being well paid. It's important to pay people who serve the public, but if if ordinary people who don't get uh, as well paid uh, see these public sector workers going on strike for their tax dollars, um, you know, the resentment breeds more easily. Uh, one one last question, looking back, and I know there was uh, the election and it was a, a very busy, busy time during the 2001 strike. Do you look back at that and think of any lessons learned or if you had a redo, would you do anything differently? I would have called the election slightly earlier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Anything else? (laughs) No. (laughs) We we, we were up against the term limit. We had to call the election at that moment. And and we couldn't have waited. Uh, If we could have waited, uh, I would have um, perhaps um, sent people back to work. I did uh, back uh, in terms of the school workers, QP workers. We legislated them back to work. Sometimes you need to do that. And it seems like there's more of a reluctance when we're talking about an NDP government, though, that's viewed as much more of a friendly to Labour government to do that. Well, of course, but uh, the NDP government has done that. We did that um, when I was Premier. Uh, 
under Dave Barrett, people were sent back to work. Uh, under Harcourt, people were sent back to work. Uh, under Glenn Clark, uh, uh, unions were uh, strikes were outlawed for the period of the election. So you know, it, it, like it's not a it, it, it's not something that hasn't been by done by the NDP governments. The NDP governments are slightly more reluctant. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Ujjal Desanj, for joining us uh, to talk about this. Uh, hopefully we don't see a repeat of 2001, but thank you again so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Good to be with you. Taking a look now at the impeachment hearings and what's been happening in the United States. And uh, Donald Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, has been tweeting about this, saying he was being sarcastic when talking about his relationship with the president. Uh, Giuliani was answering questions about the inquiry. I've seen things written like, he's going to throw me under the bus. Right. When they say that, I say, he isn't, but I have insurance. He was speaking on Fox News Saturday. Giuliani said he continues to have a good relationship with the president, and it can be assumed that he talks to Trump early and often. That is a direct quote. So let's take a look at what happened at the impeachment inquiry and what we could possibly expect to happen next. Andy Hira is an SFU political science professor who joins us on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Sure. I'm happy to be with you. Uh, What is your take on what we've heard the testimony so far at the impeachment hearings? Well, the interesting thing is, from a legal point of view, it's clear that uh, Trump was in violation of the uh, of the law in the Constitution, but uh, polls really haven't moved much. So maybe there will be a lag effect, but uh, I think the Democrats are playing kind of to an empty audience because uh, they're preaching to the choir at this point. And so nothing really, uh, I know a lot of the testimony, not that people watched it around the clock, but certainly uh, people were tuned in when it started, uh, when we heard that testimony. Was there anything in there then, I, I guess what you're, like you said, the polls haven't changed, but was there anything in there that, that is considered a bombshell or, or was completely unexpected? Well, I think the biggest variable was the way that Sondland was going to play it out, his former ambassador to the EU. And no one really knew what he was going to say because he had sort of contradicted himself in previous testimony. Uh, but he came right out swinging and uh, pointed out that Trump uh, was aware of the call. Pompeo, his secretary of state, was aware of the call. And so he really directly implicated the president uh, who had previously denied uh, some of the call's contents or even that uh, his uh, chain of command was aware of uh, what Giuliani was doing. And do you think, does it all come down to that call and the the allegation of uh, of meddling and, and with the Ukraine, or is it more of, a, of an abuse of power in general? Yeah, it's an accumulation, I think, that uh, the Democrats have seen all along. And we remember that uh, Mueller really fizzled out in terms of being a witness for him, although there were a lot of uh, things that uh, could have indicted Trump in terms of the obstruction of justice. Uh, because of the way the Mueller hearing played out in terms of public uh, perceptions, uh, they never really got any traction with that. So they're being very careful about how they played this out in terms of trying to get the public's attention, keeping it short and to the point, and getting straight to the facts. Uh, the testimony that we've heard so far, um, do you think there's a possibility, because there is still some talk of more witnesses or perhaps surprise witnesses that could be considered before this possibly goes to the House Judiciary Committee, do you think that's likely? I think there's probably uh, going to be a few more witnesses, but uh, my feeling is the Democrats want to wrap this up fairly quickly. Uh, Adam Schiff, the, the chair of the Intelligence Committee, has indicated that 
he thinks there's already more than enough evidence to indict the president and uh, move it on to impeachment. Of course, it now has to go to the House Judiciary Committee. So there will still be a process to play out over the next week or two. But I'm sure they want to wrap it up by the end of the year. Uh, Which could put us pretty close to Christmas that they'll be dealing with this. Yeah, that's right. So the impeachment uh, trial would start in the Senate probably in the beginning of the year, which will then really have a big effect on the uh, upcoming presidential race next year. Uh, do you think it, it would, though, with it, that point, like you said, at the, right now, with hearing the testimony and what we've heard, not really moving the dial all that much, do you think that the, the actual trial would do that? Well, the strange thing is that uh, Trump seems to be indicating now that he would like the trial to actually have hearings and so that he could uh, sort of give his side, which is a very dangerous strategy on his part, because he could uh, continue to implicate himself more directly uh, instead of the Senate just dismissing the whole thing and moving on. Uh, and there was some talk of that even during the hearings. Uh, I mean, I guess what kind of sticks out for a lot of people is just being one of the more bizarre parts of this is the fact that he was tweeting while there were witnesses testimo- testifying. There was some talk that he would testify or he would uh, give a written submission uh, as, as far uh, and actually participate in the hearing. Yeah, it's kind of the it's a very strange uh, period of uh, history right now where Trump is continually uh, trying to detract from facts and he's raising doubts in his uh, conspiracy laden uh, audiences minds about what's really true and what's not. And uh, he's been fairly successful with that. His whole presidency, remember, is based on a series of allegations against Barack Obama, claims about his own fortune Um, He's been pretty successful at actually creating untruths and running on them. Do you think, too, it's it's the subject matter that perhaps people aren't uh, that that people who are well, people who are Trump supporters, it likely wouldn't change their mind. Is it a a case of the seriousness of the allegations? Maybe people don't take them as seriously or don't think they're that some don't think it's that big of a deal. Well, I think it's clear there's a core of his supporters. You know, he's consistently kind of topped out at about 40 percent in the polls. And let's say his core is about 30 percent and the Democrats have another 40 to 45 percent. So the play is really for that 10 to 20 percent in between the independents. And the early indications are that they're, you know, Trump has kind of worn out his welcome with them. They call them the suburban swing voters or the white women. You know, there are a variety of uh, labels for these constituencies. And that's really what this whole trial is about, is trying to swing those independent voters. Uh, There are some indications uh, that it's happening. For example, there was a recent interview with a conservative talk show host in Illinois, uh, which downstate is pretty conservative, who said he just could no longer support Trump. Uh, So I think the Democrats are starting to get a little bit of traction with those swing voters. Do you think it's also because of who Donald Trump is and how he has performed as president? I mean, would any other president get away with this? There's no precedent for what's been happening here for the last three years. And of course, uh, Trump and he has Fox News on his side. So 24 hours a day, Fox News is claiming this is a big conspiracy and that he hasn't been able to get anything done because the Democrats have been against him from day one. I'm sure that has a a lot of uh, weight with his uh, with his supporters because uh, it's true that there's been tension uh, from the beginning. Remember, uh, even when he was inaugurated, he was claiming untruths about his, the crowd size at his inauguration.
Uh, that's true. Uh, what do you think then, as far as uh, the timeline? And we, we kind of touched on this that uh, if it goes if it goes forward, if we see a hearing, if we see this uh, pushing it closer to Christmas, uh, even at that point, if it kind of gets past that hurdle, what happens next as far as uh, still going to Senate? Yeah, well, so the House will have a vote, and then if the majority votes for impeachment, uh, then the Senate will begin its trial uh, with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court presiding over it. And then it's really up to the Senate how they want to proceed. Uh, it'll be like a, you know, fashion like a regular court trial with witnesses on both sides. And at that point, the president will have the chance to, and the Republicans will have the chance to call in their own witnesses and make the case. Of course, the biggest question is whether anyone from the administration would testify. Uh, Just yesterday, we found out that Pompeo was directly implicated with uh, having conversations with Giuliani and so was fully aware of what was happening. Uh, But my feeling is the administration probably won't uh, send their uh, own personnel directly to the trial. So this will be presided over by Mitch McConnell will be a case of trying to defend the president's actions as either not being that important or that Somehow there was a legitimate uh, concern about the Ukrainians uh, being involved in the election. All right. Uh, We will leave it there. Andy Hira, thank you so much for your time this morning uh, to talk with us about this. Appreciate it. Sure. Anytime. We have been talking about some of the measures brought in in this province when it comes to vaping and some of the changes that have been made. But one doctor at St. Paul's Hospital says more needs to be done. And Stuart Kreisman has been working at St. Paul's for many, many years. And he joins me on the line to talk more about vaping and the vaping regulations. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me on your show. Uh, Well, it's a big topic. It certainly is one that's been in the news a lot lately. What are your concerns or thoughts about uh, vaping and the dangers, uh, particularly when we're talking about young people? Well, I I think the the dangers are tremendous. And the problem is that we don't know uh, precisely what what they are. Um, They clearly seem to be a lot more than than we used to think. uh, from the beginning, it was obvious that uh, vaping e-cigarettes uh, was going to be a double-edged sword at best. Um, it, it was a question of uh, benefit for pre-existing smokers uh, versus uh, harm to uh, the next generation taking up a cool form of, of smoking. Um, and my views have evolved over the last uh, decade or so, and now I would say a much better analogy is that what vaping actually is, is is a butter knife with a nuclear bomb attached to the other end. Butter knife because how much benefit there actually is for the pre-existing smokers uh, remains inconclusive at best. Uh, there have been some studies to show that using e-cigarettes uh, might be more effective than standard uh, nicotine replacement uh, for getting one off tobacco. Um, but first of all, nicotine replacement is not very good to begin with. It's about half as good as Zyban, which in itself is about half as good as, as Champix. Um, and so those same studies that show that it's a little bit better than replacement for getting off tobacco also show that they ended up with, with much more dual use, so using both uh, smoked cigarettes and e-cigarettes at the same time. And there's now data to suggest that dual use may be uh, particularly dangerous, uh, higher risks than, than either one alone. Um, and also there were less uh, nicotine 
three uh, people in that study, i.e. that they got off everything. Um, and then other studies have shown the reverse, have showed that e-cigarettes actually make it more difficult to quit. So at best, it's controversial whether there's going to be any benefit for the pre-existing smokers to use switching to e-cigarettes as, as a method uh, for quitting. Um, and for my personal practice, very few of my patients uh, are trying this, and very few of those that have tried it are, are succeeding with it, and most seem to be following it into a dual-use category. Because but the other side of that is, is the nuclear bomb attached. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's the next generation of youth uh, taking this up. And the numbers are just staggering. Um, there was a study that actually just came out yesterday uh, called the Compass Study. Um, and what it showed, uh, they have curves uh, that, that show by year the changes uh, over the past few years. And there was a slight increase from 2013 up through about 2016, 2017. But the last two years, there's just an elbow in the curve. And uh, it's gone from approximately 10% to approximately 25% in two years, and that's, that's uh, uh, grades 9 to 12, whether they've uh, vaped over the last 30 days. Um, so the, the rate of rise is, is just tremendous right now. And, and we're seeing an increase in illnesses linked to this. So we've seen fatalities linked to this. Uh, so is that because of the products themselves in that people don't know what's in these vaping products? Or if they do have an ingredient list, it's not accurate? What is it that's making them so dangerous? Well, well I think the problem is that we don't completely know. So um, it looks like, so there's, there's two health issues. There's the short-term health issues and there's the long-term health issues. So the short-term health issue is this thing that's been all over the news. Um, it's been dubbed e-valley, uh, e-cigarette, or uh, vaping-associated lung injury. Uh, and there's been, I think the current number is 47 uh, deaths in the States and over 2,000 cases. And there's been a handful of cases in Canada and elsewhere in the world as well. Um, and it's clearly not one thing accounting for all of these cases. Uh, but it seems like vitamin E acetate is, is an additive uh, most commonly in, in THC uh, using vaping devices uh, is currently the, the prime culprit. Um, but I don't know if there's any way to know whether or not that's, that's in your, uh, your device. Um, and again, that seems like that's far from, from the only thing that's out there. Um, there's also other acute health illness. There's one that was just reported in Canada a few days ago, a case of popcorn lung in a, in a young individual. And I recall cases of popcorn lung being, uh, being reported uh, two, three years ago from this. So, so this, this is not new. There certainly is an acute danger, even if this most recent uh, severe near-fatal epidemic gets somehow solved, which there isn't anything suggesting that it, that it will be anytime soon. But you know, to be seen. The other side of it is what are the chronic effects of uh, vaping for decades or, or longer? And uh, we don't know. Um, you know, I would never say, I, I used to say, well, it's probably safer than smoking and, and suggest to my uh, smokers, yeah, you could consider trying it. I would never make that statement anymore. Uh, I would never suggest that anyone try to use uh, vaping as a method to quit smoking. 
there's a new study coming out almost every day showing that there's uh, physiologic uh, dangers uh, to um, uh, to vaping in terms of effect on on lungs and heart and blood vessels. Um, and uh, the the main ingredients uh, in uh, in vape juice, um, it's actually not water. Water is less than 25%. The two main ingredients are propylene glycol and uh, vegetable glycerin, which together make up uh, over 75%. And those things are known to be safe to be ingested. They've never been known to be safe when they're inhaled, and especially not heated and inhaled. Um, so it may be that, that this is causing a different sort of uh, short and long-term lung injury from what uh, smoking causes, and that may be why dual users are, are at increased risk. Uh, it took 20, 30 years for us to, to start seeing the cases of lung cancer and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and coronary artery disease, heart attacks uh, with, with regular tobacco. There's no one who can stand here and say that that is not going to happen uh, with e-cigarettes. With e um, I certainly think there's going to be some risk of these things. You know, which one is, is going to be more is, is anybody's guess. So what is your response to the B.C. government bringing in regulations or, or raising taxes, raising the sales tax on these items to try and discourage uh, especially young people from using them? Well, I'd, I'd like to commend uh, the B.C. government and Adrian Dix on, on what they've done. I think they need to go farther, but, but they are first, and it, it's always good uh, to be a first, and I think some of the things that, that they've done are quite good. Uh, Adrian Dix made a comment uh, along the lines of what was intended as a, uh, a smoking cessation device has turned into a youth epidemic. And uh, I agree with him on the second part, but I, I'm going to be a little bit more cynical. I don't think this ever was truly intended as a smoking cessation device. I think that was the tactical Trojan horse uh, that they used. Uh, in order to get at their their real goal, their real market, uh, the young children, and, and hooking the next generation, and you can see that you know in the flavors that, that they've released, uh, tutti frutti, watermelon, etc. Obviously, stuff aimed at at kids, um, and just the fact that they're using it says in in their reports, say, hey, we're going to grow our market through through these methods. All right. Well, we'll wait and see, I suppose, then, if other provinces or if the federal government gets involved. Uh, Dr. Kreisman, we're right out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your thoughts on this. Thank you, Jill. Thank you again. Well, as many of you likely know, Metro Vancouver is now more than three weeks into job action. This as the union representing 5,000 bus drivers, C-bus operators and maintenance workers is putting continued pressure on Coast Mountain Bus Company. And we are bracing for a shutdown of bus and C-bus services this week on Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, unless something happens before then. But at this point, it does look as though the services will be shut down as the job action escalates. So let's bring in Rod Mickelberg, who is a former correspondent for the Globe and Mail, former labor reporter as well. Rod, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Hi, Joe. Hi. What do you think of how things have unfolded so far in this labor dispute? Well, I think the parties are still uh, far apart, especially on, on wages. So it's a very difficult dispute. You have a pumped up membership and a and they're negotiating against TransLink, which, after all, does have a bit of a limited budget. So... Uh, 
it's unclear at this point where the middle ground is and where there will finally be a settlement. Uh, it seems at this point, too, uh, and this is just anecdotally, but it does seem like people are, are in support of the, the drivers, especially when you hear stories of drivers working seven and a half hours without getting a break. Uh, do you think that will change if we do see this full shutdown of the system? Well, I think anyone that takes, the, to, takes buses, as I do, I've done, them all, done it all my life, uh, gets to know the bus drivers and realize, you know, they're... they're the heroic job that 95% do. I mean, and they're not all perfect, but uh, most of them are, are, are really quite wonderful because it's a tough job negotiating packed buses through different areas of town, traffic, and the whole thing. And uh, so I don't think that will uh, disappear. I mean, I don't think people will start taking their wrath out on the bus drivers, but at a certain point, you know, people will start to, to suffer and be very seriously inconvenienced uh, by a shutdown. And People's support will translate, will probably transfer into a, a real desire to, to have it end uh, rather than abandoning the support for the bus drivers because, you know, uh, so many more people are dependent on public transit than the last strike in 2001, and the weather's worse, Christmas is approaching, so the inconvenience to the public will be much higher. And what about the idea of the offer that's that's out there? And I think anybody would agree, if you're working this job, and it is a very important job, it's a stressful job, you do need a break. You need a bathroom break. You need a lunch break. That's not that's not up for debate. But the offer of the, the wage offer on the table, and the company keeps pushing this, saying that it's a very generous offer. There seems to be no movement there at all. Uh, do you think the public sees that as, as a generous offer? Well, probably the public is not paying much attention to the to the actual specific offers themselves. I mean, the bathroom break issue and all that, the, everyone could relate to that, right? So that got a, a lot of attention and a lot of sympathy. Uh, with the wages, I think the public just, you know, tends to be, I suppose, sympathetic to the bus drivers for the reasons I articulated. But, uh, I mean, it, you can disparage the TransLink's offer all you want, but it is still... Uh, better than the public sector wage pattern that the provincial government has imp- has imposed on employees under its jurisdiction. So it's not like it's nothing. It's 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 a reasonable offer. But the bus drivers are seeking more. They're looking at uh, the wages in Toronto and saying they're far behind that. They're saying that uh, at some point their their wages are behind those of Sky SkyTrain attendants. And so uh, it's not good enough for them. And it's I don't know where the final settlement will be. But as I say, the, the parties are quite, quite far apart at this point. And I get that. On wages. Exactly. And, and that's something, too, where we boil it down and we talk about maximum salaries and the company saying the offer would make the maximum salary 69900 for drivers, 88000 for trades workers, uh, which are easy numbers to digest. But it's I think when you look at things like Sunday premiums and benefit packages and that when we're comparing, say, SkyTrain maintenance workers to Coast Mountain bus maintenance workers, it's impossible for anybody outside of the negotiations and outside of that workforce to really know all the, the the tiny details. Yes, no, that, and that's a, that's a fair point. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's not like bus drivers are poorly paid. It's just that it's a highly stressful job. You want safe bus drivers, and they have to. They have a, a lot of responsibilities, so you do want them well paid. The question, of course, is how well paid. <laughs> that's why we have a dispute. Uh, talking about the comparing of the wages as well, because this has come up uh, time and time again in that uh, the union compares to Toronto, compares to other jurisdictions. The company says, uh-uh, you can't do that. We don't do that. But then they do that for executive salaries. What about that kind of disconnect? 
Well, I think, you know, the union doesn't like to acknowledge this, but I think there is a difference between uh, the high-paid executives of TransLink because it's a different market out there for that kind of skill and expertise. And I don't think anyone would deny that the the current people in charge of TransLink are doing a very good job. You just have to look at the ridership levels and the way they're increasing uh, to to, to accept that. And with uh, there is... You know, I'm not sure that they say there's a shortage, a bit of a shortage of bus drivers. But, you know, at that level, it's still a pretty good job, even in high cost Vancouver. And uh, I'm not sure that uh, comparisons uh, to Toronto really uh, bear weight in a sense, because I mean, but but unions will use the leverage that they can. And, and, you know, it's hard to, you know, if, if I were a bus driver, I'd look at Toronto and say, hey, why can't we be paid the same? But in terms of actual hard-nosed collective bargaining, uh, the settlement is where you end up, and you use that as a leverage point. But if we start comparing uh, the salaries here to salaries in Toronto for everybody, I mean, where where does that end up? <laughs> that's that's very true. Uh, and, and you mentioned that as well, this talk of a shortage or, or the, the talk of it's, it's not a, a bad job as far as a salary. And I think that was reflected, and it wasn't that long ago, Coast Mountain Bus, uh, they did a job fair, and there was a lineup of people right. that were interested and wanted to become bus drivers. Well, it's good, secure work. It's tough work. I mean, it's it's not easy, uh, but uh, it, it is a decent job. It, it's, uh, you know, if you're into serving the public, too, I mean, there's no doubt how much we appreciate a good bus driver. The benefits uh, are, are, are good, and again, you're, you're not going to be laid off. If, if you can take it and and you like bus driving. A lot of the drivers like it. Uh, there are worse jobs out there. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think it is one of those jobs. You don't take this job because it's a job. It's a certain person that's drawn well, to it. Well, if you do take good. it for that reason, you don't last long. <laughs> no, exactly. Uh, where do you think we're going as far as uh, the, the Premier, John Horgan, said uh, that a four-month strike that we saw in 2001 is not going to happen under his watch? Where no. do you think we're going as far as government intervention? Well, uh, it's. I still think it's a. It's a bit, a bit early for the government to do any kind of high-level uh, intervention because you know once governments start intervening in labor disputes, then it because you know it, it has an impact because then other parties uh, don't have an incentive to s- settle because they think the government's going to come in and bail everyone out. Uh, I think there is room for for the government to make some moves, but I think it does need to just settle a bit and to, for people to get an idea of what a bus shutdown is like and uh then i think i mean it's clear it's a difficult issue for the government there's no there's no question about that what what do you do especially with the parties far apart and you you could send in a mediator but unless there's an appetite to settle you're not going to get anywhere the parties aren't going to move very much so uh one of the things i was thinking of is the government might want to summon both sides to victoria and just you know, have a private discussion with them and just see where it's at and and get a a face-to-face sense of this dispute because it's a difficult one and it's it is going to cause hardship to the public and it's the public of course that that aren't in aren't rolling in dough it's it's students and it's seniors and it's low-income people or or, you know and and ordinary commuters uh, those are who are on the buses so uh, you know, the, I, I don't think the government is having much fun with this dispute because it's not the, the solution is not easy. No, uh, absolutely. All but right, but John Horgan is quite right. They're not going to let it go on for four months. Uh, if if it really does drag on, uh, I think you will see the government do something. All right, uh, Rod. Thank you so much. Uh, good to chat with you, and thanks for taking a few moments with us this morning. Sure, always a pleasure.
It is exactly one month until Christmas Eve. Certainly not too early to be talking about Christmas. And many people, I think, may be spending their afternoon putting up their Christmas tree or at least thinking about going to get it. Well, we talked about this last year as well. And this year, Aunt Leah's Tree Lot is celebrating the 25th anniversary of selling trees. And this is a fundraiser that goes to help some really uh, important people. And it does some amazing work. And bringing uh, bringing this to us, the story to us, I am pleased to have Sarah Stewart on the line, who is the executive director at Aunt Leah's. Uh, Sarah Stewart, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, we also have Sarah Hall, uh, who is a beneficiary of Aunt Leah's. So two Sarahs with us this morning. Uh, Sarah Hall, thank you as well for being with us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, I want to start with Sarah Stewart. Uh, Sarah, tell us a little bit about the background about how Aunt Leah's and how the tree lots came to be. Right. So 25 years ago in 1994, we opened our first tree lot down at the corner of 54th and Granville at St. Stephen's United Church. And that was done um, just connected to that we we needed some, uh, we, we received a uh, uh uh, cut in our uh, government funding. And so we needed to raise some money to continue our work with moms and babies and with youth who are aging out of the child welfare system. And so since then, we've been, uh, we now have five tree lots and uh, we've just been really embraced by the community of um, Vancouver who love to buy their trees <laughs> at Antlia's tree lots. And and talk a bit about, you talked about people, youth aging yeah. out of care, because that really has been the focus of Antlia's, isn't it? Hasn't it? It really is. I mean, what what we do is we look at what families in Vancouver are doing and what they're doing is they're continuing to support their uh, young adult children in their early to late 20s with rent, food, support with education. And so that's what we're doing. We're looking to continue, provide that continuous support for our young people so they can go to school they can focus on their studies or they can they have a bit of help with the real estate market um, with rent and, and, and all the things that parents do. Uh, Sarah Hall, uh, a beneficiary of Aunt Leah's. I wouldn't normally use last names, but because you, both, you guys both have the right. same first name, I'll, I'll call you by last, by last names as well. Uh, Sarah Hall, how were you helped by Aunt Leah's? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm in the nursing program and Aunt Leah's has been helping me out since around last April, and they provide support um, that goes kind of toward, like, my living expenses um, because in nursing school I haven't really been able to work um, full-time, so they kind of fill that gap for me so I don't have to choose between, like, going to school and kind of pursuing a dream or um, making sure I can, like, afford to live. And what would you be doing then if you didn't have that help from Aunt Leah's? Um, I honestly... Um, this term I probably would have dropped out of nursing school um, and would have just kind of gone back to um, my job that I currently have um, to kind of be able to afford to live. And Sarah Stewart, the numbers are pretty shocking. I think people would be, most people, I think, would be quite surprised to to hear that about half of, of BC foster youth will at some point experience homelessness. That just seems like such a high number. Yeah, I think the number is that the it's of of the youth who are homeless, half of them are uh, foster children. That I think that's the stat, or or had been connected to the child welfare system, and and it, it really is. Um, it's not good. Like that's not a good 
indicator of what's happening for our young people. And it's grown over the years and it's directly connected to um, what's happening with the rental market and being able to, to find a home. Our young people, when they turn 19, they're going up and competing against professionals with a, a, a well-versed reference of other rentals. Like there's, there's not a lot of opportunity for them. And so we really try to do, create those opportunities so that way they can focus on what, what they should be focusing on, which is going to school and, and meeting all those developmental milestones that we want our young people to, to meet and achieve. And I mentioned uh, off the top, the tree lots are the main fundraiser for Aunt Leah's. Do you make enough to do all of the help that you want to, or is there always a need for more? There, there's always a need for more. And, you know, it, it, like, it, it happens through um, partnerships with other agencies, um, through donations of items. We have a thrift store on the corner of Broadway, Maine, and people donate furniture and clothing and our young people often can go in there and shop for free and get furniture for their homes and clothing for their new jobs. So there's so many ways that we try to connect in with the community of Vancouver to support our young people. And Sarah Hall, I'll go back to you on this. It's one thing as far as obviously people need money to like yourself to stay in school and need that financial help. How has it helped you as well, though, as far as self-esteem and and being able to be independent? Yeah, so at least it's really um, helped me just feel supported and not I guess, like, stress and, like, um, helped me establish, like, a higher self-esteem knowing that there's going to be somebody in my corner um, kind of, like, helping me and supporting me and um, giving me advice when need be, which has been pivotal when, you know, I have, like, the stress of school and, like, other life events happening. Knowing that I can always, like, rely on somebody has been really helpful. And it sounds too like it, like it is such a, a well a different approach as far as really really creating family. It's not it's not just saying oh here's the money and now go off on your own and figure it out. It does feel like there's that family. Do you get the sense of, of being kind of part of a family? Yeah, definitely. Like um, anytime I need something, I can give um, the people who I'm normally in contact with a phone call. They're usually very responsive. And even if they don't have, like, the direct answer for me, they can, they always help me, like, find other people who might have the answer, which has been very helpful um, just in, like, trying to figure things out. All right. And Sarah, Sarah Stewart, the, the idea of the Christmas tree lots, and I'll go through, or I'll let people know uh, where the, the different locations are. How did it uh, come about that Christmas trees would be the focus of the fundraising? Um, I think just at the time we sort of considered what was an annual fundraiser we could do that uh, fit with, um, you know, what we were able to do. And yeah, we just sort of felt and looked at a couple of models of uh, other places, other uh, charities and, and decided that, yeah, we could try selling Christmas trees and it works out really well. And what's been pretty great about it is we've been able to, um, provided as a training and employment opportunity for our, our young people and our families as well, which just sort of adds that extra benefit in general. Right. So do people, young people that are involved with Aunt Leah's, do they also volunteer or they're part of the Christmas tree sales also? Yeah. Yeah. We have a, a one young, one young person. She's uh, managing one of our tree lots this year and she started off as a, a young person in training. It's, it's pretty great to, pretty great to see.
Uh, and Sarah Hall, what advice would you give if somebody's in a position maybe similar to, to yourself and maybe is reluctant to reach out for help? What advice would you give to them? Um, to always try. As I know, like, that's everyone says, like, to just try. Um, but I know for myself, there is a lot of periods in my life or even when I was pursuing school where it just I felt hopeless because I was like, you know, I got into a great program. But now, like, the hard part came where it's like, how am I going to live? Um, so if you're determined and resilient to kind of like pursue different avenues and you probably will get like a lot of no's or I can't help you. Um, but there are organizations like Aunt Leah's who, um, can provide support, whatever, and like kind of meet you where you're at and try to like, you know, make things work. Um, yeah. So just not to give up and just kind of to like connect with different people and pursue, um, different people. And and Sarah Stewart, is it difficult sometimes too as well? We're talking about people, and I know some of the the recipients as well of help from Aunt Leah's, uh, people who have been in, in numerous, in some cases dozens of foster homes, haven't come from any kind of real stability. Is it difficult in some cases to get people to trust and to, to take the help from Aunt Leah's? Oh, for sure. The, a lot of the families and the young people were we're working with they've come from they they have really valid reasons to have great mistrust with any adult or any professional and so definitely the first piece is to earn that trust and and we work really hard to try to do that all right. Uh, and getting back to the tree lots themselves, uh, they opened up on November 21st. They go right to December 23rd. Are you still looking for volunteers or what are you looking for from the public? Yes, we're definitely looking for volunteers. I'm volunteering this afternoon at one of our lots selling Christmas trees with my daughter. It's a really fun uh, family sort of thing to go and, and do and be a part of the Christmas spirit. We're, um, we don't just sell Christmas trees. We sell wreaths and poinsettias and stuff like that. So if people don't buy Christmas trees, they can buy other things there. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a fun event. <laughs> All right. And are there people on, on site to help people pick out the perfect tree? Because it can be a little daunting when you walk in and see all of these trees in front of you. Yes. Uh, I'm, as a volunteer this afternoon, I'll be there explaining the difference between a jack pine and a cultured Douglas tree. So our, our volunteers are trained up and there's lots of information uh, there at the site that uh, tell you about the trees too. All right. And uh, Sarah Hall, will you be getting a Christmas tree this year? I think so. I haven't had a Christmas tree before, so it might be a a good time to get my first one from Aunt Leah's. All right. Well, thanks to both of you so much. Uh, Very important, the work that Aunt Leah's does uh, and to learn more about it and uh, very timely in that I think a lot of people are starting to to realize that they need to get the Christmas tree. So thank you so much to both of you uh, for coming on the show this morning. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.